This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the country's biggest arts funder published a plan to boost coverage of culture, which has been dwindling in our media for a while now. We ask, where did all the music criticism go? and the money to pay for it properly. Also, the chief of the country's most powerful media watchdog says we need new laws now to hold the media to account in the future, but will the powers that be give them more power? But before all that, though, when exactly do we get a new government? News just out, the National Party, this is being reported by One News, the National Party is apparently deeply frustrated that a coalition deal was not signed today. Uh, Reportedly, the party had hoped that today was the day that they would be signing a deal between National Act and New Zealand First. Uh, This, and Because, of course, that's only going to happen tomorrow, and that would line up with the reports that we had heard that the thing had been delayed uh, through the course of today and something had gone ever so slightly wrong. That was News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen on Thursday evening with the latest hiccup in the road to a new government even after talks between the parties had wrapped up. And while Heather Duplessy-Allen was relaying the delaying reported by TBNZ, TBNZ was reporting that New Zealand first big Bible fan Shane Jones had been reciting Exodus to a rival reporter. 40 days on from vote casting, New Zealand First MP and prophet Shane Jones promising biblical feats. Well, there's a great line from Exodus. 40 days and 40 nights up in the mountain and the covenant emerged and the commandments were written. So it's probably the day. Now there, Shane Jones was giving chapter and Bible verse to News Hub's Lloyd Burr, though TVNZ couldn't bring itself to name him or his employer. And as 40 days and 40 nights came and went, TVNZ's Seven Sharp then consulted former police negotiator turned consultant Lance Burdett, who had this bleak assessment. The negotiations that have been going on is kind of like a kidnapped situation, isn't it? And at this point, people were starting to demand proof of life for this new national-led government-in-waiting. Or, as RNZ's Giles Dexter put it earlier in the week... Another day of waiting. And waiting. And waiting. Back on News Talk ZB, though, Heather Duplessy-Allen was still confident on Thursday that it was just one more day away. Or was that wishful thinking? But hey, listen, at least it's going to go right tomorrow, right? Absolutely. They will sign it tomorrow. Absolutely. We all know that. So if that doesn't happen, there's a problem. And as long as that happens, we're okay. But as we now know, the parties did put pen to paper on a unique three-way deal the next day at Parliament at last. Kia ora, good morning. We interrupt normal programming to bring you breaking news. 41 days since Election Day, the shape of the new government is just about to be officially signed off. Winston Peters set to be Deputy Prime Minister for the first half of the next parliamentary term. David Seymour set to be uh, the Deputy Prime Minister for the second half. Both act in New Zealand first with three MPs in Cabinet. Well, 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 what a delicate solution that is for the role of Deputy Prime Minister, isn't it, Jack? Thank you to all of you for your patience and your understanding and the wait for this government to be formed over the last 20 days. I think it is a real credit to New Zealanders that we now handle the MMP process with such calmness and maturity. Though, as TBNZ's Jessica Much Mackay had pointed out on Thursday night, that was only one of two steps to go. Firstly, the party boards have to sign off on this, and then they need to get the OK from the Governor-General as well. So it will still be next week at the earliest before we actually have a working government. However, sealing the party political deal did mean an end to the tedious negotiation saga in the media. Never in New Zealand politics has so much been said by so many reporters and commentators, working with so few morsels of actual information for so long. 
From the start, though, Christopher Luxon did try to manage the media's expectations by telling them there were no deadlines and he wouldn't do blow-by-blow updates on the progress. And Winston Peters also gave the media next to nothing to work with. It is very annoying to ask stupid questions. And at times he even refused to respond to questions at all. TVNZ kept score of the unacknowledged questions in one particular airport run one day like this. Happy to be back? Possibly back in town? You've noticed they've uh, changed the Air New Zealand uh, safety demo. Is there anything you'd like to say, Mr Peters? But by contrast, Act's leader David Seymour was pretty happy to be interviewed, though not about the specifics of who was calling whom and how. And so you've reached out to Winston Peters, he sent you to voicemail. Does that concern you? Uh, If you want to get into the technicalities of how phones work, then you can. Um, But I don't know if that's uh, (laughs) the level of... He's he's ignoring you. He's he's been ignoring you. I don't know if that's the level of debate that New Zealanders want. David Seymour was probably right about that last point there. But in the absence of meaningful comment, as the days ticked by, that was pretty much all the media got. And last weekend, Christopher Luxon, having abandoned his no-daily-update strategy, also ended up telling reporters about how they were using their phones. There just might be a depth of conversation you want to get to that's easier done in person uh, across a table, you know, around a table, than it is actually doing it through the telephone. Um, Equally, there's a lot of other things that are quite transactional and quite straightforward that we can resolve through a phone or require us to, you know, go away and do some work respectively uh, and we brief that in together and then we go off and do that work. Now, when broadcast journalists need to check if a source is being recorded loud and clear, they often ask a throwaway question, what did you have for breakfast? Though they, of course, have no real interest in the actual answer. But when the key quotes in this government negotiation story ended up being lame quips about wheat bicks... Well, you can never have too many wheat bicks, can you now? I mean, <laughs> I can. I, I, yeah, I, I think they're a great start to the day. It was pretty clear that this particular political drama had long since jumped the shark as a media spectacle. Though News Hub's Lloyd Burr and Tamara Finamoya did make an eight-minute montage of political leaders' placeholder platitudes 39 days in. All party leaders understand the urgency. Listen, yeah, that... In a jungle. We're moving with tremendous urgency. We've been ahead of the, the curve. We've been trying to make sure that we can you know, deal with issues and have conversations about things that we need to do so. Now that was funny in parts, but it was a pretty hard watch overall, given what had gone on since the election. And if any TV producer out there is tempted to pitch a docudrama to NZ On Air, telling the tale of how this government was formed, please don't. There's been more than enough made of it by our media these past few weeks to last us more than a lifetime. This week, the Broadcasting Standards Authority issued its last batch of rulings for this year on formal complaints it received earlier in 2023. And it's an interesting bunch. There was one about country calendar depicting deer being hunted, shot and processed at an abattoir. Just the reality of daily life in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the authority decided. It also declined to determine a complaint about undecided people being excluded from TVNZ's pre-election polls and a complaint about a character described as effing annoying in a book review on 9 to noon. It didn't breach the standard for offensive and disturbing content, the authority decided. And to be clear, effing annoying is exactly what was said on air, not the F-word variant itself. But the authority did uphold a complaint against News Talk ZB host Mike Hosking, who told listeners during a teacher's strike, people who go on strike have always been on full pay, they're supported by the unions. 
That was materially inaccurate and misleading, said the authority, even though some listeners did get in touch on ZB afterwards who knew that that wasn't right. And a majority of the authority also upheld, though only in part, a complaint about a discussion on TBNZ show Marae about freedom of expression in the wake of provocateur Posey Parker's visit to New Zealand. Rainbow community activist Chanel Lal had strayed into the realms of personal attack, the BSA said, though not all its members considered it a breach of standards. And the BSA also considered a complaint about MediaWatch, which was a response to our analysis of another decision made by another media complaints body. The Media Council had earlier found a stuff news report about the safety of puberty blockers lacked balance. The authority found that the live midweek Media Watch discussion about that decision was sufficiently balanced and focused on the implications of the decision for journalists. And the alleged inaccuracies in our broadcast, in fact, constituted comment, analysis or opinion, the authority said. And Media Watch's critique did not result in unfairness. Now, in addition to those latest decisions, the Broadcasting Standards Authority also this week released its annual report to call for urgent and long-overdue reforms to the laws for media regulation. Increasingly obsolete legislation is making it more difficult for us to achieve our mission, said the authority's chief executive, Stacey Wood. Since 2019, that mission has been to protect New Zealanders from harm under a new vision statement, Freedom in Broadcasting Without Harm. But what does that mean? We'll come back to that later. But what then is the problem with the existing law for the Broadcasting Standards Authority? The BSA is backed up by the Broadcasting Act of 1989, and uniquely, the authority can order errant broadcasters off the air for really bad breaches of standards, and even make them apologise. Now, it hardly ever does that, but it does make broadcasters pay modest penalties for bad breaches and acknowledge them on the air. But there are other regulators that don't have the same power, the Media Council, for example, for what used to be called the Print Media and the Advertising Standards Authority for Advertisements. And then there's the Classification Office for other content and publications overseen by the Office of the Chief Censor, and that has separate legislation. Now that all leaves whole swathes of online media effectively unregulated, though laws governing privacy, defamation and harmful digital content can be applied to anything that's really egregious and illegal that's published on the internet. But seeing as broadcasters, newspaper publishers and advertisers all operate on the web anyway, having four regulatory agencies that predate the internet does really seem out of date. Five years ago, the Department of Internal Affairs, Te Tari Taifenua, first proposed one framework for all media with codes of practice to be enforced by an independent regulator. Now There was some consultation with broadcasters over this, and then came COVID disruption, and then last May, a new proposal called Safer Online Services and Media Platforms, which was explained this way. We all consume and experience content, from books and film, to social media and new AI technologies, as well as everything in between. Over 30 years ago, we designed a system that largely kept us safe from TVs, movies, books and radio. But it isn't up to the task for the high volume and high speed content environment of today. We need new regulations for online and media platforms to ensure the safety of individuals when they consume content. Now, this proposal said that media services like TV and radio broadcasters would also need to follow new codes, and the new regulator would have the power to penalise serious failures. 
And back in June, the editor of the New Zealand Herald, Shane Curry, said media executives were worried about this. I managed to speak to most of the CEOs or the, or the different businesses, and it's fair to say uh, the reaction's um, very cautious through to concern, deep concern right, around... Concern well, concern that, uh, about the impact on, I guess, the freedom of the press. Um, it's important that media, uh, you know, that there's nothing preemptive or um, prescriptive in this new superpower that they can sort of dictate where the media is going. Now, that, in, Internal Affairs itself has said, look, we're not... We're not setting up the superpower to kind, to kind of um, dictate. But what would responsible news media have to fear from this? Well, Shane Carey said they were concerned about that notion of harm. Where the concern uh, may come in is, is around the principles themselves and, and what defines harm. So, and this is where okay. the hate speech, hate speech laws came into really The Safer Online Services and Media Platforms Review did note that the news media were a low risk of harbouring harmful content. But disclosures made in the course of journalism can end up harming some people, even if they're in the wider public interest. A consultation on the department's plan to replace four avenues of complaint with just one ended in July and there's been nothing reported back yet. But when it is, it'll be reported back to a new government which will need to be persuaded that this is worth doing. So this week I asked the Broadcasting Standards Authority Chief Executive Stacey Wood is that why she went public this week to say that the slow-moving and possibly even stalled overhaul is now urgent. One of the things I found interesting was that uh, annual reports from about uh, 10 years ago were uh, making comments about looking forward to the upcoming regulatory reform (laughs) and the need for that. We've finally had consultation this year um, on the safer online services and media platforms. Um, It would be a shame if if things stalled now. This is urgent. Uh, People are being harmed. Uh, and traditional broadcasting media is not where most of the harm is happening. The outgoing government did have a plan. This is run through the Department of Internal Affairs, uh, Safer Online Services and Media Platforms is the name that it now has. But that's been going on since about 2018 when they opened up. Is that actually what you want? You want that plan... We're broadly supportive of the plan. Uh, we do think there's quite a few details that still need to be ironed out, though. Um, one of the goals of the uh, proposed new framework is to reduce fragmentation and increase simplicity and you know make it easy for people to know where to go because currently we've got so many doors if you have a complaint. Uh, but it, it wasn't totally clear to us from the consultation how much simpler the new system would be. But the main, sorry to interrupt you, but the main yeah. thing to make it simple or uh, less fragmented, as you put it, was having one body. Effectively, this would replace you, wouldn't it? And there would be an, another body. The BSA would cease to exist. In its current form, uh, we still think there's a role for uh, a complaints body, um, an oversight body of traditional broadcasting media. Um, It could be something like uh, what's happened in the UK, where Ofcom has... uh, absorbed uh, a lot of new functions relating to the online space. So uh, so it might be that uh, the standards uh, that we've been upholding for the last 34 years are applied uh, at a higher level to new platforms. So because it's simply not practical for people to complain about something they see on social media, wait for a complaints decision to come out and then see if it's going to get taken down or not. By that time it's gone all around the world and disappeared and morphed into something else. Right, because broadcasting decisions right now, the ones released this week, for example, they may go back to 
April or May, for they example. They go back the a actual, few months, the yeah. The actual broadcast being complained about. That's yeah. right. But on social media, there's just no effect. So you need to be holding those um, online providers to account and saying it's on you to make sure that people are safe and not being harmed in the first place by the content that appears on your platform. Does this effectively give you a bigger empire? You'd have a new name, but uh, you'd be well situated to actually take on more responsibilities, become we would bigger love and more that. powerful? You know, it would be a big job. Uh, but at the moment, we feel like we've got all of this expertise and and knowledge and we're seeing all the research that's coming out about uh, harm that's being done to people online and we would love to be able to contribute to solving that but we just have no jurisdiction and not really any money because levies are going down We've just had our first government funding increase in 20 years. So when or so. you say levies going down, these are media companies that uh, pay levies. Yeah, so to... traditional broadcasting companies, television and radio, if they make over a certain amount of money every year, they have to pay us levies to fund the complaint system. And it's, um, you know, there's an argument that that's not really fair when online streamers and uh, social media don't have to do any of that. Yeah. However, as you mentioned, 10 years ago, uh, the former government looked at this. The Law Commission recommended one a one-stop shop for regulation. The government then looked at it. It didn't happen. Do you think the current one that's coming in will be any more inclined to do it? We hope that it will be a priority for the new government. The risks now are perhaps not totally different to the risks 10 years ago, but some of them have been really highlighted in recent years. So you miss and disinformation, foreign interference in elections, self-harm by young people experiencing uh, harmful content online. But we do have the Harmful Digital Communications Act uh, specifically for this as well. News media companies that, uh, as, as the, um, say, for online services and media platforms review pointed out, are at low risk. They don't carry this sort of stuff. They are broadly uh, responsible. So they won't want to be drawn into a regulator that has more power. And the way things are, a lot of media get to regulate themselves effectively, and so do the advertisers. So they're not going to want to give that up. You'll have to persuade them as well as the government. Won't yeah, you? and no, that we support uh, a co-regulatory system, perhaps similar, perhaps somewhat different to what we've got now, where the providers, the platforms are responsible in the first instance for their processes, for their codes, for their. Um, but where there's a regulator to make sure people are playing by the rules. So we do think that it's just important to. Uh, not have one rule for all, but make sure that there aren't the big gaps in our regulation that we've got at the moment. There will be those, a bid to create a bigger regulator covering all media. It's going to come into opposition from organisations like Free Speech Union and so on. Are you prepared for that? There will be resistance? There's always going to be controversy when we're talking about limits on free speech, uh, but it's always been recognised that the right to freedom of expression and free speech is never... Absolute. There's always reasonable limits, especially where it comes into conflict with competing rights. That is the heart of our mission, though. Our Broadcasting Standards Authority uh, is about freedom of expression without harm. But harm means mm. different things. I mean, some would oh, say yeah. good, responsible journalism can harm some people, but it's in the wider public interest that things are exposed, whether or not it's bad for some individuals. So the BSA adopted that in 2019, that freedom in broadcasting without harm. Uh, but again, another body with wider powers also operating online, censorship powers effectively, um, news media won't like it. It's a tough one. Uh, harm is not 
being offended, but harm means different things to different people, as you've um, said. But we don't think that the fact that it's difficult should stop us from doing it. And if it doesn't happen, if a current government says, sorry, we've got other priorities, carry on as you were, kind of what happened 10 years ago, uh, what's the worst that will happen if you don't get the regulatory reform you say is really urgent? For us, selfishly, it's going to become more expensive each year to achieve less uh, because we'll be reaching fewer people watching television or listening to the radio. Uh, We'll have continued to see falling levies from traditional media. The authority will continue to issue robust and useful decisions. That can be challenged in court, uh, unlike other regulators. That's right. Uh, But we won't be preventing harm to the extent that we have in the past because that is not where the harm is occurring increasingly. Finally, though, uh, yes, your annual report out this week. Uh, So, yeah, interesting, the patterns of complaints, 169 complaints, 121 decisions. Uh, You know, only seven upheld uh, by the authority. So, look, broadly, broadcast media, as we know it, uh, still broadly responsible on upholding their own standards as well as uh, as, as well as those uh, in the BSA's um, codes? That's right. That was the lowest rate of upholds that we've had in a few years. Um, and it does reflect that traditional broadcast media are generally doing a really good job of upholding standards. We, we did issue three upholds this week, but uh, <laughs> the pattern still stands. The annual report does mention a spike in last couple of years over COVID-related issues and coverage. That seems to have fallen away a bit, I guess, as the pandemic itself has uh, moved on a bit. But now also you've had to issue those guidance notes about gender identity issues. Is that now one that's keeping you busy? It's keeping us busy. It's certainly not uh, the same as the real spike that we had around COVID. Um, and there are always issues of the day that we see a wave of complaints about. We expect we'll see an increased number around the Gaza conflict. We expect to um, probably continue to receive complaints about people speaking today on the television. But we do... Although you can now kind of decline to determine them. We can decline to determine them, but we still have to consider them. And the broadcaster does as well. But it is still frustrating to see. That was Stacey Wood, Broadcasting Standards Authority Chief Executive, who this week warned that reforms to the laws for media regulation are urgent and long overdue. Back in July, the arts funding outfit Creative New Zealand inadvertently picked a pretty intense week to release a new survey called Visibility Matters, which showed that media coverage of culture was dwindling. And one day earlier, the media had published a flood of stories about the crimes of multi-millionaire arts patron Sir James Wallace, described by many in the media as a worst-kept secret, while his name was still suppressed. But the Visibility Matters survey's finding that arts and culture get just half of the space in our media that's devoted to sport these days, well, that wasn't news to people in the arts. Now, that report was prompted in part by longtime arts writer Mark Amory, who's now the co-host of RNZ's Culture 101, on the air every Sunday at 1pm here on RNZ National. And at the time, he told Media Watch that one of the big problems was that arts events with a PR push behind them did get coverage in advance, but actual critical analysis of them was harder to find. Too much preview, not enough review, in other words. Now, Creative New Zealand has followed up Visibility Matters with another report released this week 
New Mirrors, all about ways to strengthen arts and culture media coverage in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And the authors of that will be talking about it on Culture 101 next Sunday here on RNZ National. But in the meantime, Hayden Donnell now looks at one art form which used to generate lots of critical coverage in our media, but now, not so much. Kia ora, Chris. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. Happy to be here. We've just had a new report out. It's called New Mirrors. It's about the state of arts and culture reporting in New Zealand. In short, things are not looking great, according to this report. Do you share that assessment? It's nice to see that I'm not the only one out there uh, trying to point at things and say, hey, this is a problem. What are we going to do about it? Like, There's actually now a document with research and interviews that says a lot of the same stuff I've been trying to get across in some of my work for the last couple of months. Yeah, so that work is mainly focused on basically music journalism, how there's very few or no paid music journalists for print in New Zealand. Is that the only issue, though? Uh, If you look at the most recent uh, cuts and restructurings at uh, our two biggest newsrooms, at Stuff and and New Zealand Herald, Stuff's entertainment team, I understand, have now been kind of subsumed into the news team, so they are not sort of full-time entertainment reporters anymore. Uh, And then at the Herald, I understand they have one uh, entertainment reporter across the board. There was a lot of experience lost in those recent cuts. It's arts across the board. It's film, TV, it's uh, books, arts. It's it's all facets of that coverage. 20-plus years I was covering arts and culture, mostly focused on um, the cool stuff, music, film and TV. But, uh, you know, we'd cross paths with other writers and covering that other stuff too. They were always there in the newsroom, you know. Can you paint a picture of how things have changed from those early days? Yeah. Uh, When I started, not only could you be a full-time music journalist, you could choose what kind of music you wanted to cover. If you wanted to cover alternative or hip-hop, you went to Real Groove magazine. If you wanted to cover rock or uh, pop, you went to uh, Rip It Up. There were uh, magazines for, for electronica and dance, remix and pavement. The Herald had uh, its Time Out publication, which started, I think, in sort of 2000, 2001, the early 2000s anyway, and that was like this weekly dump of everything you needed to know in the entertainment world. Uh, There was also arts coverage in uh, Canvas on the Weekend Herald. There was a second Time Out. And I think in your blog you said there was like six roles attached to Time Out. When I left in 2019, there were six of us. There was sort of more experienced heads plus the new younger journalists coming through and we were sort of teaching them the ropes on how to do that. Yeah, that was 2019. I think a lot of those roles were lost because during COVID, obviously, there were no events. So there was no advertising for concerts or movies because no one could go to those things. Uh, the, the stunning thing to me now is that uh, it's come back this upcoming summer is the busiest summer for live events I've ever seen. We have 80 music festivals happening this summer. That doesn't include Foo Fighters, Pink, these kind of stadium spectacles. Coldplay announced a show this week. Go look at the Power Station's lineup of acts coming. It's just, it's chocker. It's it's going off. And you wrote in your blog that there was a couple of major music festivals. Eden Fest, I think, was one of them, where just no one attended from the news outlets. Listen no... in, yeah, Listen In was the first one. I, I logged in on Monday morning. I wanted to read about it. 
uh, and I couldn't find any coverage. And then the following weekend, Eden Festival out at Mount Smart, same venue, uh, same thing. That was a new festival headlined by 660 and uh, the Fuji singer Lauren Hill, which is a pretty big lineup. Uh, I understand they've got a big crowd. These are, to me, news events. People want to read about them. But is that true? Do people want to read about them? Because these commercial news organisations, they don't make decisions for nothing. They're obviously in tough economic times. They're looking at the stuff that might not be getting clicks or might not be making money. And they've obviously identified arts and music coverage. Is, is that fair to say? I don't know if it's a, as conscious as that. Uh, you know, I spent 20 years proving to editors that entertainment and, and culture was worthy of coverage and it could work if you did it right, if you did it smartly, if you did it uh, with intention and integrity. If you're you're covering stuff online, it's sort of, I don't know, take for example Matthew Perry passing away. You're not just hammering that all day. You're offering other things alongside it, local news stories, other things for people to read that aren't just things you can get elsewhere. Um, You're putting together, you know, a complete kind of entertainment news package for people. In New Mirrors, though, I think arts coverage is described as the canary in the coal mine. It's not part of what they call the core news. And so it's the first thing to get cut when times are tough. Mm. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah, you're not you're not in here talking to Tover O'Brien about the death of political coverage or Dylan Cleaver about the death of sports reporting. And you're kind of so asking, great. why, why us? Why not Dylan Cleaver? Why not you, Tova? Why not you? Well, yeah, but that's my point, right? Like when you don't see, I don't know, uh, Lord or Tyker on the same pages, on the same websites as All Blacks, as political figures, as business leaders, then you're almost saying that doesn't matter. That's wrong to me. That is absolutely not correct. I, I refuse to believe that. Is it a chicken or the egg situation? Because I think you'd have some people in newsrooms would, that would say, look, those stories just don't get clicked. But also they're not on the homepage. So they don't click, get clicks because they're not on the homepage. And they're not on the homepage because they don't get clicks. So is it kind of a vicious cycle that's going on here? I tell a story about 660, right? Like the first time I interviewed 660, it was awful. They didn't want to be there. It was a horrible interview. They were a closed book. Second time I interviewed them, I said, I'm not doing that. Let's go boxing. I knew they liked boxing. So we went boxing. And that also wasn't a great story. But the third time I interviewed them, this was like six years, right? They trusted me. They brought me into their studio. And that's the story that people still talk to me about. This wasn't like a rock and roll situation. This was like an office. They had whiteboards on the wall. They were plotting out this future where they headlined Eden Park and Western Springs. It was a business. And so I kind of covered that like a business story. And Uh, That took that long, and and a lot of the people in, especially the music scene, you know, promoters are are prickly people. They they take time to get to know. Um, You can't just call them up and say, hey, what's going on here? You need to have a relationship with them. And if if journalists aren't allowed to to build those contacts, you're not going to get those stories. You're not going to get the big stories. And the writers who can do that job are finding other things to do because those jobs aren't there anymore, yeah. You're at Consumer NZ, right? I am a consumer New Zealand reporter now. Like, I'm 45. I'm not sitting here saying, hire me back as a music journalist. I never thought I'd be doing this for my whole life. I never thought I'd be talking about it not happening. I thought I'd be able to, like, either mentor the new writers coming through or enjoy their work, you know. They they should be telling me what to listen to now, not me telling people I'm 45. I've got two kids. You're pretty gutted <laughs> over it. Obviously, like what are we losing when we lose this stuff? Um, On a wider context, I always had this kind of feeling that I was documenting 
you can go and read from the 80s, Sweetwater's reviews, right? They're still there. If we're not covering Eden Festival and Listen In Festival, in 20 years, you can't go back and look at them. You, no one's collating the TikToks and the Instagram reels. You know, I'm, 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 I'm of your generation, Hayden. I, I grew up with magazines and newspapers, right? I think, bit older, stop so. looking at me like that. Similar. A little, little bit older. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think there's... I think people still want to read um, about. I have to believe that. I had I had a chat yesterday with a sixty year old woman in Point Chev who uh, had she lives there. She'd heard Post Malone playing on Tuesday night, and she went and read. There's two reviews out there for that show on the Herald and stuff. She went and read both of them, and she wanted to have a conversation with me about it. She's sixty years old. People are still interested in what's happening. I think. And, you know, as a journalist, there's good stories there. There's 80 music festivals happening, and I could give you five stories off the top of my head just around trends in those music festivals. Number one, 90% of them are being headlined by men. Aren't we documenting things? Isn't that what journalists are doing? You can go and read about elections from the 2010s, the, the 80s, the 70s, and this stuff just won't be there. There are some solutions on the table in New Mirrors. One of them is just having a dedicated funding pool for artists, uh, stuff like help with their publicity and this kind of stuff. The other one is also probably more interesting for us, which is setting up something like the Science Media Centre, like a dedicated hub that just basically helps organisations with the arts reporting admin, puts a, puts together a calendar of all the upcoming arts events and sets you up with uh, potential people to interview, that kind of thing. Would that help? I think anything would help at this point. Uh, I, I love that idea. I guess I, I guess we can't, you know, having seen newsrooms make these cuts and, and get rid of their, their arts and cultural reporters in such big numbers, we can't really trust them to to bring them back. Well, I think the fee attached to that is something like $5 million a year. Where's that coming from? How that operates. But um, I love the idea. I'd love to be part of it. I um, I still don't feel like I've had that moment where I've I've helped sort of, you know, like the help I got as a, as a young entertainment journalist coming through from the Scott Carras and the Russell Baileys and the Joanna Hunkins. I haven't been able to do that. I mean, that's how it used to be, right? Like entertainment, arts and culture reporters were there in the newsroom pitching stories, fighting to get on, on those pages. If a good story is a good story, right? You know, it, it still comes back to that to me. If, if we're not putting them up there, next to to All Blacks, to cricketers, to, to politicians, then, yeah, people are going to stop reading them and they're not getting that exposure, so they're not going to get bigger. The other thing, too, I think, right, is that print is often where that hype machine starts, where, where whoever it is on the entertainment spectrum gets a story and someone on radio sees that and says oh, we should have them in. And then someone on breakfast sees that and says, oh, we should get them in on, on the couch next to John Campbell. Like there's this kind of ecosystem there. And when you pull out one of those tent poles, that all kind of collapses because no one's seeing those stories. So the tent is collapsing right now. Totally, yeah. I make you sour of music, journalism, <laughs> arts and culture coverage tomorrow. <laughs> Chris, Chris Schultz is the supreme emperor of it. <laughs> What would you do? Uh, quit. No. <laughs> <laughs> Already done that. <laughs> um, I, you, you've got to plug those journalists back into those newsrooms. 
but they've got to have experience. They've got to have mentors. They've got to have support. And then, and then those stories will come. I, the people who still want to do it. I mean, are they even in at, at journalism school? Is anyone saying, "Hey, I want to cover music"? Like, only an idiot would do that at the moment, right? Like, that's not a career. There's no career path there in New Zealand anymore. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, Chris. Thanks, Hayden. Hated it. <laughs> That was art and entertainment writer Chris Schultz, who's also a regular film and TV reviewer on RNZ's Nine to Noon, talking there to media watchers Hayden Donnell about music criticism vanishing in our media. Now, the issue of arts coverage and what to do about it was highlighted in that new report this week from Creative New Zealand, New Mirrors, Strengthening Arts and Culture Media in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And you can hear all about that in Culture 101 next Sunday here on RNZ National. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, lately an upswing in COVID cases has meant that the virus has been back in the news, along with questions about how we should deal with it this time. And on News Talk ZB late last week, morning host Kerry Woodham was telling her listeners... We as a population have to show that we can manage ourselves, manage our health and look after the community because the last thing we want, surely is to have a government or government departments decide that they will manage our health for us. And with that in mind, last Monday, News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking drew his listeners' attention to this. Oxford University, major Oxford University study, COVID lockdowns were no more effective uh, at controlling the pandemic than letting people adapt their own behaviour. wonder if that's going to be covered in the Royal Commission in this country. I, I suspect not. Now, that study, interestingly, was reported by just one major media outlet, the UK's Daily Mail. It was one of four online stories pumped out by the Mail's deputy health editor that day. And reading aloud from it, Mike Hosking said this. So you had the blanket shutdowns. They, of course, squashed the fatality rates for the virus. It was the New Zealand approach. We saved lives, etc. However, leaving people to adapt their own behaviour was just as effective, i.e. Sweden. Now, the Daily Mail said that they used data for this from around 416,000 people in New York City. Yes, both cost jobs, but both saved lives. So as we stood there, and I remember it very clearly, have a look at Sweden. What about Sweden? Is Sweden the winner? No one's the winner. At the end of the day, we did it differently, and they both seemingly, if you believe this particular study, came out with roughly the same result. But not quite. The UK and Sweden might have ended up with a similar result from their different approaches in terms of those supposed economic trade-offs between jobs, freedom of movement and deaths. But it wasn't a similar result here in New Zealand, where we've had comparable economic disruption, but only 3,500 deaths so far among about 5.5 million people. And there have been 25,000 deaths among 10.5 million Swedes reported to the World Health Organization so far. And Mike Hosking and the Daily Mail didn't mention that there have only been 5,700 deaths recorded among 5.5 million people in Sweden's neighbour, Norway. So if the COVID inquiry does take into account that major Oxford study noticed by Mike Hosking, let's hope they notice the difference that the Daily Mail and Mike Hosking didn't. And another thing about that study from the Oxford University Institute of New Economic Thinking was the name of the lead author, Professor Doyne Farmer. Back in the 1970s, when he was a graduate student, he was famously banned from all casinos in Nevada for building a crude computer that allowed a pair of gamblers to cheat in roulette, though it ended up not quite working in practice. 
Governments currently learning the lessons of COVID to prepare for pandemics in the future really won't want to gamble on getting that right the next time round. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch after the news at 10 next Wednesday night on Nights with Mark Leishman. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.